Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. These days, the entertainment world focuses on Hollywood power couples. But in the 20th century, one of these couples in the art world were surrealists Kay Sage and Eve Tongi. Coming up, we'll learn more about them and their life in Woodbury, Connecticut. First, we're focusing on a new exhibit at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford called Monsters and Myths. It's the first major exhibition to focus on the inner relationship between surrealism and war in both Europe and America during the 1930s and 40s. Do you have a favorite surrealist? You can join our conversation too. 860-275-7266. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, certainly Salvador Dali is one of the most well-known surrealists, but there were others, as we'll be talking about later in the show. And for more on surrealism, joining me now in studio is Oliver Tostman. He's the co-curator of the exhibit Monsters and Myths, also curator of European art at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford, Connecticut. Oliver, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you very much for having me here. Uh, not not uh, all of us have, have been uh, art history majors, so I think it'd be good to start out by describing surrealism. Well, there are many ways to describe surrealism. I think the best way is maybe to um, understand where they were coming from. Most of them fought in World War I in Europe. They survived the war. And what they kept from the war were these traumata, were these uh, bad memories. And they saw the Western world as it is on a decline. And the group came together in the early 1920s in Paris and was founded by an artist called André Breton. And they tried to create something new. They tried to rebel against these Western, these, these values of Western civilizations. And they tried to create a sur, uh, a super reality, a reality where the fantasy world and the everyday life mix and come together. And so they were influenced by Freud? They were heavily influenced by Freud. Um, they looked systematically into Freud's writings. They were very much interested in the unconscious, the dream world. They tried to unlock the unconscious. They tried to find out what was behind their dreams, what was behind their emotions, yes. When you mentioned uh, tr to try to unlock uh, what was behind their dreams and their emotions, um, how did they do that? What were some techniques uh, that they uh, uh, used to help uh, create these, whether it was writing at the time or then would move on to uh, paintings and sculpture? Right, so they, they tried to develop techniques that were automatic, that were sort of uncensored. Uh, the group had a strong contingent of writers, and so they tried with... Uh, finding out techniques about automatic writing, writing, where you just uh, basically add sentence after sentence without any sense of control. And the artists, the painters, they try to do very much the same. They try to create uh, um, drawings with the help of others. They try to invent games in which everyone participated. And they try to come up with new artistic techniques as well. 
Uh, you mentioned that uh, many of these uh, creative uh, people who were drawn to uh, surrealism were traumatized uh, after World War I. Uh, there was also another uh, movement, Dadaism. And how is that different uh, from surrealism? Well, Dada was, in a way, the precursor of surrealism. Really. A lot of artists who joined the surrealist group uh, already participated in the Dada group. The Dada group came to life a little bit earlier, already during World War One. It various cities across Europe, but also in New York. Dada was less programmatic as the Surrealists. It was less directed. Um, they were very much interested in the nonsensical. And so it was much more of a game for the Dadaists. Whereas the Surrealists, they, they were serious. They wrote manifestos and they had this, this program that they tried to carry through over the years. In studio with me is Oliver Tostman. Again, he's co-curator of this exhibit, Monsters and Myths, Surrealism and War in the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, when we talk about this exhibit, what, what were you trying to accomplish in putting this exhibition together? And who did you include? Well, we tried to give an overview of what happened in the period of roughly 1935 to 1945 with surrealism. What we discovered was that there was this sort of um, turn. They suddenly started to look into ancient mytho mythologies. They started to look at monsters. And our starting question was, why is that? How does it come together? And so we tried to, we, to bring the most important works, the seminal works, together that deal with this uh, iconographical turn in one way or another. Mm. And so we wanted to have, of course, the most important artists included. I mean, there are wonderful works by Salvador Dali, Juan Miro, uh, for instance. But then we also wanted to, to include lesser known artists that were equally important for the surrealist movement and equally important in developing this new, this new surrealist imagery at that time. If you want to get a taste of some of uh, the uh, works that we're talking about, you can go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live, and you can see a slideshow of some of the artists that are featured in Monsters and Myths. Um, when we talk a little bit about the, um, the factors that led them uh, to embrace uh, surrealism, can we talk a little bit more about the, those factors, like why they were frustrated with politics at the time, obviously with the war, being traumatized? How did that then um, end up being reflected in their work? Can you give us an example of some of the paintings we might be talking about? Of course. I think one example is the French painter André Masson. Um, he is lesser known here in the United States uh, compared to France, and yet he is represented here with key works. Uh, Masson fought in World War I, and that experience was deeply traumatizing for him. He, throughout his later life, he came back and again and again on these experiences. And we show one image, one picture, one painting that he painted in 1938, in which you see a flagellated person who's embraced by an harp. This now sounds surreal, this description. <laughs> and uh, he is bleeding. He has been just castrated. And yet his, his head has a form that reminds us of, of pomegranates. And uh, what is interesting is that pomegranates had a deeply symbolic meaning for André Masson. When he fought in World War I, uh, a 
during one especially bloody fight, he saw a dead comrade lying in the trenches ahead of him. And his head was blown up and it reminded him of a pomegranate apple. And so you see how these, how these experiences informed the artists and how these traumata came back decades later in André Masson's case in 1938 when he had just returned from Spain, when he was just uh, fl fleeing the Spanish Civil War and about to settle back in France. Mm -hmm. So he was reflecting some of the trauma that he witnessed. But then how did uh, people who were not surrealists uh, um, engage with that kind of painting? Was it traumatic for them to look at? I would guess so. The, the surrealists during the 1930s were by far the most important, the most uh, sort of, um, yes, the most important avant-garde movement. So a lot of artists who were not strictly speaking, part of the group, they looked very closely of what the group was doing and they followed the, uh, they followed the group. One example, and the, this is probably the best known example, is Pablo Picasso, who was always independent, who always was proud of staying independent. And yet some of the surrealists were close friends of his and he went to the exhibitions and he looked at their imagery. And when you look at Picasso's oeuvre of, of the 1930s, of course, Guernica comes first uh, to, to our mind. But then there's this whole series that he created of the Minotaur, uh, this uh, ancient creature, this monster, half bull, half, half man. Um, he created this, this series out of it. And that has its predecessors uh, among the Surrealist group. They very much uh, championed that figure. And uh, the Minotaur uh, became one of the sort of... Um, sources of inspiration of the surrealists at the very same time. Oliver, you mentioned uh, taking influence from uh, monsters and mythology, but what about uh, when you look at some of these pieces, how they were highly sexualized? That was part of it? That was always part of it. The, from the start, the, uh, the surrealists were fascinated with sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, they were uh, d deeply interested in the darker forces of sexuality. Um, when we think about the surrealists, we should not um, think about a group that contained only writers and painters. Um, there were also philosophers engaged with it. And uh, a lot of those philosophers, they were, they were extremely fascinated by, by violence and sexuality. And I think that that sort of um, pairing uh, goes, goes like a threat through the, throughout the whole exhibition. And you can see how, uh, how the depiction of violence um, inevitably also brings up uh, pictures of sexuality. This is where we live. Today we're learning more about surrealism and the latest exhibition at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford called Monsters and Myths. In studio with me is Oliver Tossman, who is co-curator of the exhibit, also curator of European art at the Wadsworth Museum. Now, if there's something uh, that uh, surrealist work that you've really engaged with through the years or a favorite surrealist, uh, we'd like to hear from you. The number 860-275-7266. And as always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, I mentioned uh, Dali at the top of the show. He was one of the most famous surrealists. And we have a little clip of him actually speaking back in 1970 on the Dick Cavett show. Your paintings have a very dreamlike quality. And uh, I do find them fascinating. I'd like well, to look at... There's uh, no uh, dream because uh, it's never a dream. It's hypnagogical image. Hypnagogical image. Before... What is that? It's like 10 minutes before the sleep. And that's, again, a Dali back in uh, 1970. And Monsters and Myths includes a couple of, of his pieces as well? Yes, that's true. Um, it's just a wonderful clip. I did not know about that. <laughs> Thank you. We'll be sure to share it with you after the show. Uh, what made him so um, remarkable and so well-known? Was it his flamboyance? Um, 
Oliver? Probably a combination of things. Uh, his, uh, his flamboyance, his skill for languages, his sense of marketing, and uh, most importantly, his, his amazing talents as, as an artist, as a painter. Uh, when you look at the paintings that you can see in our show, you, you can just see that he has this refined old mastery technique that, uh, unlike any, anyone else of his generation, mastered. And he can play off these very, very complicated subjects. And he uh, depicts them in a very realistic fashion. And yet, at the same time, so those are the most unknown subjects that one has ever seen. And which uh, Dali pieces are part of the exhibition? Well, the Athenaeum bought very early on during the 1930s one of his most important paintings, the so-called Apparition on the Beach, which is a uh, still life where you see a dog, uh, all these different images blend into another. And then in our context, most importantly, there's also a portrait. And uh, Dali painted that painting shortly after the execution of his dear friend Federico Garcia Lorca, who was one of the most important Spanish poets at that time. Lorca was executed by the fascist forces during the Spanish Civil War. And in this painting of our collection, Dali uh, remembers his dear friend as in a sort of memento mori. Mm. But then next to that painting, we have this, I would say, iconic painting coming from Philadelphia, the Museum of Art there, that is called The Premonition of War, painted only months before the factual outbreak of the Spanish Civil War. And you see this, this monstrous creature uh, towering over a Spanish landscape. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very important and, and shivering work of art. And we've tweeted out uh, uh, one of those, uh, a picture of one of those uh, Dali uh, works called Apparition of Face and Fruit Dish on a Beach. Um, when we were thinking about uh, the people that you've included in this exhibition, um, you've also included some who were not surrealists, is that right? Are they all surrealists? The, we, we did include some 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 say some prints by Pablo Picasso and there's some some place there's some contention whether Picasso was a surrealist or not he was not and yet the surrealist very closely looked at Picasso at that time and Picasso himself looked very closely at the surrealist so he worked in those works that works that we show in a surrealist fashion mm -hmm. strongly inspired by surrealism uh, you mentioned, uh, I was curious about Frida Kahlo because when we look at her work some of us may think well she's a surrealist but that's not something that she embraced well, Frida Kahlo is a, is a, is a case apart. Uh, we I should confide this to you. We we <laughs> wanted to include her, of course. Uh, it is not easy to get uh, Frida Kahlo paintings. Uh, Frida Kahlo was close to the surrealist as well. Uh, she lived in Mexico City mainly, but she had visited Paris earlier. She knew uh, the surrealist from those trips to Paris. Uh, Mexico City itself became a very important center for surrealism uh, after the outbreak of of. Uh, World War II. And uh, we uh, do not show Frida Kahlo. We do show some other artists instead who were inspired by, by Mexico. Mm. Yes. Again, we're talking about this exhibition, uh, Monsters and Myths, Surrealism and War in the 1930s and 1940s uh, at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. You mentioned uh, uh, after the World War II began, uh, these artists being displaced. Uh, how did uh, they end up in New York? Who were some of the artists that we saw leaving uh, Europe and, and coming to the States? The, basically, the uh, majority of the group came to the First to the United States, uh, André Breton, André Masson, Salvador Dali, uh, they all escaped to come here to, to America. Some of them then moved further south to Mexico City. 
So New York City and Mexico City were the two centers during, the, uh, during World War II of surrealism here in the Americas. Uh, with uh, their move uh, to the United States, how did that change their work, if at all? Well, that is one of the uh, crucial questions of the show because uh, you can see this variety of artists and how differently they reacted to the new world. When André Masson arrived here on the shores uh, of America, um, he was questioned by policemen. And in exasperation, he, he claimed that you, you Americans, you have no myths here in this country, and which, sounds, which sounds negative. But then when you look at his works that he created only months after that, um, you see how sensitively he reacted to America, how sensitively he reacted to the, to the new landscape, to the colors, to, uh, to, to the flora, to the fauna. It's an entirely different corpus of work that he created here in America. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Oliver Tossman's here, co-curator of the exhibit Monsters and Myths. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk more about a surrealist that lived in the United States, including here in Connecticut. And we're going to learn more about the influence of the Wadsworth in bringing surrealists here. You can join our conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We've been learning about surrealism, the focus of a new exhibit at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. It's called Monsters and Myths. You can learn more at wmpr.org slash where we live. In studio with me is Oliver Tossman, who's co-curator of the exhibit Monsters and Myths. Uh, before we learn about this very active community of surrealists who actually lived in Connecticut, uh, Oliver, I wanted to ask you about the influence of Wadsworth director uh, uh, Chick Austin and how he was, why he was attracted to surrealism, but then to bring some of these surrealists uh, here to Hartford, including Dali. It's a wonderful question. Chick Austin was the director at the Wadsworth Athenaeum from the late 1920s up to 1944. Uh, he was seminal in uh, in champion uh, in, in in promoting surrealism here in the United States. He very early on was drawn to surrealism. You asked why. I think there, there are probably various reasons. For one reason is that surrealism was simply so important in Europe. It was the most pressing, the uh, most forward-looking um, avant-garde project going on in Europe. And he knew what was going on in Europe because he traveled very often to Europe. So he simply knew that he had to bring those artists over to the United States. Um, on another level, you can uh, think about his personality. From all we know, he must have been flamboyant. He must have been interested in ma must have had an, an interest in magic. He uh, was very much uh, he was very creative on his own. And I think he he, he felt alike. He, he, he saw similarities between the surrealist artists and their 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 dreams and their 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 project and himself and his own interests. Uh, when we think about the location of Hartford today, uh, we often think about it being tricky because we're between New York City and Boston. But did that help Hartford in the sense that they were they were close to New York City to bring artists like uh, Dali here? I think I think so. I think so. Um, it was still it was three hours away from New York, and yet 
Jake Austin was was able to 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 linger uh, as often as he wished in in New York to uh, to build up important relationships with dealers there. And once he met artists, he could easily bring them to Hartford. They would usually stay here for a couple of days at his residence or at other places. And uh, there was a constant stream of European artists coming to the to visit the Wadsworth Athenaeum throughout the 1930s up until the early 1940s. And there was this exhibition, a newer super realism, the first exhibition of surrealism art in the U.S. happened right here at the Wadsworth. That is correct. And that is so important for the history of surrealism here in the United States. Chick Austin worked very closely with a New York dealer on that, on this exhibition. His name is Julian Levy. Uh, the show traveled to Levy's gallery after it had opened here in in Hartford. And uh, it was a mid-sized show after today's standards. But when you look at the works that he was able to bring together, it was simply stunning. And for the United States, that show really changed everything. Uh, we wanted to learn more about uh, surrealists who actually resided here in Connecticut. Uh, joining the conversation is Aaron Monroe, who's Associate Curator of American Art at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. Aaron, welcome back to where we live. Thank you for having me. Uh, so tell us about uh, some of the artists that we may not be familiar with who actually lived in Connecticut. And what part of the state are we talking about? So uh, Litchfield County, um, an area you know westward of Hartford, is uh, really home or was home to a kind of quasi-artist colony. Artists uh, whose names may be less familiar but are well represented in the Monsters and Myths exhibition and in the Wadsworth collection in general include uh, Eve Tongi, Kay Sage, Dorothea Tanning, Alexander Calder, who's uh, as an American is an artist I spend a lot of time thinking about. And um, through a variety of circumstances, ended up in places like Roxbury, Sherman, Woodbury, and were drawn in part to the promise of more space and, and these big kind of converted barns where they could set up their studios and the proximity to New York, I think, had something to do with it. We're going to be learning more about Kay Sage and her husband, <laughs> Eva Tongi, a little bit later here on Where We Live. But you mentioned Alexandra Calder, and, and one of his works is part of this exhibit, Monsters mm-hmm. and Myths. Can you talk about it? Yeah. Uh, one of the wonderful things about having this show uh, bring new light to objects that are regularly on view but seen in a new context um, right when you enter the space. And I should offer a little teaser that the exhibition design is surreal in some ways. Uh, Calder's work called The Praying Mantis is uh, sort of greets you. Uh, It's a larger than life um, praying mantis insect in a wonderful sort of minimal uh, sculpture with wood and wire. And um, what Calder did is he manipulated proportions. So while this, you know, five-inch high insect is something you would see in nature, it greets you. It's almost five feet high in the exhibition. And it's a testament to the interest in the natural world as uh, a source of inspiration for shape and form that Calder then translates into a sort of surreal, menacing creature. Uh, you mentioned uh, that the landscape uh, here uh, helped uh, uh, these artists uh, when they came and resided and may have influenced their work. But what about Native American mythology? Did that play a part at all? That's something I'm less familiar with. I know that um, totemic art and art of the Pacific Northwest um, was highly influential to some of the artists in the show, like Wolfgang Pollen. So uh, the idea of 
symbolism with animals is something that is a recurring theme. Oliver, did, uh, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I think um, I would like to add and say something about Max Ernst and, already, uh, and André Masson, whom I mentioned already. They both grew up in Europe. And when you grow up in Europe, you grow up with this romantic sense of, of the American West. You grow up with all these wonderful stories of, of Native Americans and cowboys. And uh, Max Ernst and, uh, and, and André Masson certainly did. And so when they came here to the United States, they had this romantic vision of, of America, which was probably very different from the sort of uh, reality that they were facing. But nevertheless, when you look at their works, you can see how these, how these myths are still shimmering through. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, as we learn more about surrealism and surrealist artists who actually lived here in the state of Connecticut. Um, with me in studio is Oliver Tossman, who's co-curator of the exhibit Monsters and Myths, Surrealism and War in the 1930s and 1940s, and Aaron Monroe, associate curator of American art at the museum. Uh, we were talking about, again, um, some very well-known names uh, for those who are um, who know a lot about surrealism, but what about some other surrealists who we didn't he that we don't know about that are not as common uh, mm -hmm. as Salvador Dali, Aaron? Could you uh, give us some names and describe their works? Sure. Well, as Oliver pointed out, the history of the Wadsworth Athenaeum and surrealism really is is grounded in this early exhibition, newer superrealism. And while the collections and artworks we acquired back then um, were of the moment, they actually were somewhat male-dominated. So uh, the female surrealists, uh, particularly in recent years, um, have become of greater interest and there's more scholarship paid to them. One comes to mind, Dorothea Tanning, who um, is an artist that often uses her own biography uh, as sort of one layer of these dreamlike compositions that sometimes have monstrous and mythical beings. But oftentimes the female body is either fractured or sort of discombobulated in a way. So um, in the Wadsworth collection, but um, not the tanning in the exhibition, is a painting called A Beautiful Girl, which has a headless figure behind this sort of mysterious scaffold. Um, the tanning in the exhibition is perfect for the theme of the show. Uh, it's The Temptation of St. Anthony, is that? That's correct, yeah. yes. Um, so, you know, referring again to the kind of mythological fictional world as well as her own biography is something that Dorothea Tanning is really good at. Mm. Uh, Kay Sage, another contemporary. So these are women that happen to be romantically involved with male surrealists. Uh, Tanning was a partner of Max Ernst. They were married. Um, Sage and Tongi, another kind of power couple that you referenced. And oftentimes their male counterparts uh, overshadowed their own careers. So uh, the benefit of, of having these individuals not around allows us to kind of reassess them. And Kay Sage is someone who has these really um, remarkable, distinctive dreamlike canvases where um, there is very little that alludes to what you would see walking around in the street. She has these invented forms that are pointed wooden structures. Um, her palette is very gray and muted. Um, but when you see a Kay Sage painting from the 40s, you know exactly that it was my, by Kay Sage. It's a very distinctive style. She was an artist, and we learn, we'll be learning more about her uh, in a little bit. Uh, but why did women receive less recognition at that time? Oh, <laughs> there's a variety of reasons. <laughs> I mean, I think some of the showmanship that came with their male counterparts had a lot to do with it. Um, 
also, I mean, one of the realities of the surrealist motifs and iconography is that there is occasionally a, a voyeurism and a, and a sort of objectification of the female body. Um, so I think people like Kay Sage and Tanning, they struggled to find their own language that could either respond to that or talk about something totally different. Um, so, that, you know, for me, I think it's a little bit circumstantial of the 1930s. Um, Oliver, do you have anything you'd add? Well, I would like to add that personally, for me, one of the biggest discoveries in that ex- in this exhibition is a sculpture, a bronze sculpture by a artist called Maria Martins. Uh, she was the wife of the Brazilian ambassador here in the United States and was close with the Surrealist group in New York. And she created this wonderful uh, female body um, that references a Brazilian myth. And it fits very well into the larger layout of the show and I did not know about her and uh, we learned more and more about her significance during those years and uh, she is a a highly important uh, absolutely um, moving artist of those years. Again, in studio with me is Oliver Tossman, who's co-curator of this exhibit we're focusing in on uh, here on Where We Live, called Monsters and Myths, Surrealism and War in the 1930s and 40s. In studio with me also Aaron Monroe, Associate Curator of American Art at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. Uh, Oliver, we heard you talk about um, how many of these artists uh, left Europe at the beginning of World War II, and this was a very influential movement, this uh, surrealism uh, movement. But then as the war ended, this uh, surrealism also dissolved. Can you talk about the reasons why? Surrealism um, did not so dissolve. It just it simply changed. Uh, some of the artists went back to Europe once peace was settling in. Thinking about Salvador Dali, André Breton, André Masson, they all went back. A few stayed over here. Uh, Surrealism did not regain that importance, that pre-war importance that they had. Uh, If you think about what was going on here in the United States in the late 1940s, early 1950s with abstract expressionism, um, those were new art movements that came up and uh, were sort sort of pushing into the limelight that surrealism held had previously. Uh, As you mentioned, you're the co-curator of this exhibit. Um, As the visitors are coming through, what do you want them to take away from this? I want them to take away the incredible inventiveness of the of the surrealist, their sense of experimentation. Uh, when you go through the show, you see so many styles, so many answers to what happened to them uh, from 1935 to 1945. Uh, so many answers to what 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 constitutes their dream world. You have nearby abstract styles. You have nearby figurative styles. It all comes together. And I think that is one of the most wonderful um, outcomes of the show, that you see the variety and the richness of surrealism at that time. Uh, when we think about uh, the connection here in Connecticut, uh, Aaron, and we and we were mentioning some of the female uh, surrealists who didn't get a lot of attention at the time but um, have now um, been embraced, uh, we heard Oliver mention uh, these male surrealists uh, took uh, the trauma that they experienced during World War One and reflected that in their work. What did the women draw on? Mm-hmm. I <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I think there's certainly the the social and political realities of war. Are, are certainly there. I think their their desire to find their own voices um, 
and perhaps being sort of second fiddle to their male counterparts often required them to turn to their own personal biographies. Um, you know, it's interesting. Dorothea Tanning, um, she lived until 2012 and went on to have this amazing, prolific career. She worked in soft sculpture. Um, she was an author. So uh, many of these females were just exceedingly talented, and they just needed the time to let their voices be heard. Um, but they do often draw upon their their personal biographies. I'd like to offer, too, the Wadsworth um, presented a joint exhibition of Eve Tongi and Kay Sage in 1954, where their works were actually shown in two separate rooms. So Sage's work was in one room and Tongi's was in another. And a, a recent exhibition about five years ago revisited that and then integrated them. And you can see how her husband's work, um, you know, th there's a visual connection um, to those artists working side by side in the same house and how, um, you know, the influence was directional and it wasn't just her looking at Tongi's work. So I think that's a good example of, of the visual impact of these female artists is there and now being looked at with great seriousness. Mm. Oliver, uh, how long does this exhibition run? It will run until mid-January. And what advice do you have for the museum goer today? Uh, so often we are distracted by our electronic devices, but as people move from one work to the next, um, what would you tell them in terms of what to pay attention to and, and how long should they spend at your exhibition? They should spend days in the <laughs> exhibition, of course. I would tell the visitor that he should think about his own his own dreams, his own nightmares, and think himself into to become a surrealist artist, and and and, and think about how these surrealists reacted to a uh, to a changing political landscape, and they found themselves in a situation that um, uh, that was nightmarish. So how did they re how did artists who were preoccupied with their dreams? How did they how did they react to a, a dreamlike to a nightmarish reality? Erin, mm. did you want to add to that? Well, I, I want to give Oliver a, a, a little bit of a kudos because adjacent to the show is an auxiliary installation called Embracing Surrealism. And it really delves into the surrealist activity here in Hartford, as well as Connecticut, with unique players like Chick Austin and Alexander Calder. Um, so that opportunity to reflect on Connecticut's role in this incredibly inventive moment in the history of art and modern art um, is another asset. And to realize that the surrealists, were they were questioning the norm. And I think that that is a really powerful concept. Relevant today. Relevant today. Aaron Monroe, and Aaron Monroe is Associate Curator of American Art at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. Thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Oliver, also, Oliver Tossman was here, Curator of European Art at the Wadsworth Athenaeum and co-curator of this exhibit, Monsters and Myths, Surrealism and War in the 1930s and 1940s. Oliver, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathantro. Again, you can learn more about the exhibit, wmpr.org slash where we live. And coming up, we're going to hear more about Casey Sage and her husband, Eve Tongi, and more about a collection at the Mattituck.
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier, we learned about um, some of the surrealists who chose to live in Connecticut, specifically Western Connecticut. Did you know Woodbury, Connecticut at one time was the epicenter of the surrealist movement? Much of that had to do with two surrealists who were married. You heard their names, Yves Tongui and his wife, Kay Sage. And the Mattituck Museum in Waterbury has the world's largest collection of Kay Sage's works. To tell us more, in studio with me is Cynthia Rosnoy. Am I saying that right? Cynthia? You are. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's curator at the Mattituck Museum. Again, it's in Waterbury, Connecticut. Welcome to our show. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about Kay Sage and the influence that she and her husband, Eve, had. Well, you know, Kay Sage, who was New York born, traveled first to Italy and then to Paris to study art. And in 1938, she met Eve Tanguy. It was an instant love match, I believe. 1940, they married. They were back here in the United States, escaping Europe because of the war. 1941, they settled in Woodbury. And around them grew a surrealist circle. Uh, so tell us more about the, uh, the surrealist circle. Who, sure. did, who did Kay Sage help bring to the States? Well, you know, Kay Sage and, and uh, the Kay Sage expert, Stephen Roberson Miller, can really talk about this. But Kay Sage really was instrumental in bringing over artists such as Andre Breton, Paul Masson, people, important people like um, Marcel Duchamp mm-hmm. were part of their circle. Kay Sage was known, I believe, around Woodbury as being rather remote. Mm-hmm. But part of the archive that we have at the Mattituck Museum of Kay Sage materials includes photographs of Sage and Tangi entertaining these artists at their home. She's warm-hearted. She's smiling. She was key um, in that circle because she spoke French. And many of these artists, when they came here, only had French. This is one reason Calder, too, was important in that circle, because he spoke French. Mm. So in a way, she helped assimilate them uh, to their new surroundings. Tell us, tell us more about how the Mattituck got uh, this collection from Kay. So there are Sage um, and Tangi nearby in Woodbury. The Mattituck Museum became, in effect, their home museum. Sage served on our exhibitions committee. I believe she was also part of the ladies' committee. Uh, something that went out in the 80s. Um, but uh, Thank goodness. <laughs> right. Except they did important work for the, the museum. Um, and, and so she made it a home, her home museum. At her death uh, in 1965, after bequests, certain bequests of her will, the residual part of her estate came to the museum. It was um, a group of objects, more than 100 pieces of her artwork, her memoir, a very important unpublished manuscript called China Eggs, which is her autobiography, photographs of her house, of her life, of her friends. Also in that collection, other art objects by other objects, many by Tangi, and then by these same artists that we've talked about. Mm. And diaries and mixed media constructions? Oh, the mixed media constructions really deserve a little bit more attention, and that's something that we hope to do at the Mattituck. Um, after Tangi's death, uh, and just just after, and probably during that time, she started losing her vision. And so she wasn't able to do the kind of precise painting she used to. She started making constructions. Uh, for instance, one of them is a little box, uh, maybe three inches deep, with tinfoil on the bottom. And there's little white marbles that you play around with that. Another um, very... Um, foreboding is a uh, square case with 
shell cartridges, bullet cartridges. And it's rather foreboding because, in fact, she had tried to commit suicide with mm-hmm. guns. And so this is something that we could really put some more attention to. I wanted to bring into our discussion about K-Sage, uh, Stephen Robeson Miller, who's an independent scholar in surrealism, a freelance curator. He's written extensively on the lives of uh, K-Sage and Yves Tongui. Uh, Stephen, welcome to our show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. We don't have too much time, but could you describe Kay Sage's style and how it was different from her husband? Well, her her artwork was very much different insofar as she uh, had a, a, an architectonic, uh, rectilinear, architectural mode of expression. And I do think that probably waking up every morning and having uh, Tongi in the next studio and in the house and with her all the time, he was Mr. Uh, Biomorph, you might say. His, his, the, what was popular in, in the surrealist imagery at that time was biomorphic imagery in, in terms of the abstract imagery. And here was Kay Sage wanting to carve out her own identity and quite probably was, was influenced to not go in that direction uh, because she needed to have uh, her own uh, identity. Um, uh, that's interesting that you mentioned that. We heard earlier from a curator at the Wadsworth uh, who was talking about an exhibition where uh, both uh, Kay Sage and Yves Tanguy, their works were exhibited together. Uh, but while she was an artist, she was very much wanted to be independent of her husband, Stephen? Yes, I would say, I mean, every artist does. You want to assimilate your, your influences ultimately and strike out and do something of your, that's your own. Um, some people have said that the, the, the imagery in her paintings uh, were blocks and so forth that, she, that symbolically represented her being sort of uh, on the outs, outside the, gr- the, uh, the, the sort of inner circle of the group. But and was a salient aspect of her personality, that's possible too, but it should be balanced. A more fair-minded view would be to to say that she was also trying to carve out her own. In fact, she left, uh, and and she made statements saying that she was very influenced. She loved Yves Tanguy's paintings more than anything, but she tried very, very hard not to be influenced. And what uh, what did Tanguy think of her work? Well, Tanguy, was was the, the first generation surrealist. He was one of the form givers of surrealism, and I I think he he I know it's documented anyway in conversations I've had with the people who knew him that that he would put down her work, but uh, but you know that was probably a bit of male chauvinism. It was a it was also a combination of being in a in a foreign country for him. He didn't speak English at all. He was dependent on K-Sage to, for communication. And, uh, you know, lots of psychological factors came into play. It's, it's not a clear-cut, easy answer. But he was, after all, one of the original surrealists in, ni- in the 1920s. K-Sage came along in the 1930s, was really a second-generation surrealist, you might say, before the war uh, in Paris. And, uh, and these are things that ha- factors that have to be taken into account. 
On the phone with me, Stephen Robeson Miller, an independent scholar in surrealism, uh, surrealism and freelance curator. Also, Cynthia Rosnoy here, curator at the Mattituck Museum in Waterbury. As we learn more about surrealist Kay Sage and her husband, Eve Tongi, uh, I talked a little bit about how uh, Woodbury was considered uh, uh, the epicenter of surrealism at one point, um, and there were lots of very talented artists uh, who came here. Uh, to tell us more. Any personal anecdotes from your research, uh, Stephen, of the times they had in Woodbury? Well, I could actually like to touch on a letter that uh, the painter Mata, Roberto Sebastian Antonio Mata Shoren, uh, wrote to me in March 11, 1977. Now, this is 41, two years ago almost. I went to see him in Paris about a month later, and he wrote, he wrote me a letter when I was in Rome, and it said as follows. Uh, it said, Connecticut was in those years very much the country for all of us, and we spent weekends with Calder, Masson, Hare, Philip Johnson, Gorky, Richter, Seligman, Mark Chagall, Julian Levy, etc. Um, they all lived a few miles from each other, and I ended up at Tongi's for a drink with them. That was always a perfect bridge party, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. of jokes, surrealism, gossip, and projects of painting the great transparent reality that surrounds all of us every day. Kay was very happy with Eve, and so was Eve with Kay. They even had happy fights. They invented fight humor. Uh, but, but actually, Mata, a moment uh, earlier in the letter, states, Kay was my Mycenas as when she arranged for my exile to New York City. I was just beginning to paint, and I arrived there without work, money, or knowing anyone but, but them. In Waverly Place in Greenwich Village, Case was the meeting point for all the first of us who came to New York, among them Louis Bunuel, the filmmaker Wolfgang Pollen, uh, her cousin John Goodwin, David and Susie Hare. Susie Hare's uh, mother was Roosevelt's secretary of immigration, Frances Perkins, and David Hare was her was Case H's cousin. It could be said that I, 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 that's my editing. It could be said that I personally got in touch with young American painters through these meetings, as I became, through David Hare, a friend in, 19, uh, in 1940 of Baziotis, Gorky, Pollock, Motherwell, and with the years, each and all of them. Um, I, I think uh, that gives a sense of the comings and goings and the, the, that surrounded Kay's uh, pivotal uh, place for meetings, both first in New York City and then later in Connecticut. Mm. Uh, uh, Stephen, can I ask, uh, before we run out of time, yeah. uh, you know, say uh, we heard that uh, Kay Sage obviously was not as well known as a surrealist as her husband, but when did she g- regain that recognition? What changed? Well, she, uh, she unfortunately, uh, in a way, uh, First, when she when she wrote, wrote a will, she put all of her paintings, left all her paintings to Catherine Viviano, her dealer in New York, and and the proceeds from the sale of those works were to be used to further Catherine's gallery. A few years later, she had a change of heart, and she wanted she decided she wrote a codicil to her will in 1958 that said that all of her paintings and what remained in her studio of her unsold work. Would be should be given to college art museums around the country, uh, and this way they were in, in, they were in institutions. But at the same time, it took her work off the market. So so it became really we have a situation with Case Age where it's a um, in the marketplace anyway, it's a seller's market, and and there's so few pictures that can ever come on the market that that people who have surrealism collections, you know, will 
do anything to get them. Um, and so she, she sort of shot herself in the foot that way. But it was in typical. It, it, for example, she only made one print in her lo- entire life, a lithograph in 1947 for the Galerie des de Beaux-Arts exhibition. Uh, sorry, a, a Galerie Mocked exhibition in Paris called Sur Lisbon 1947. And th- that was in keeping with her kind of, she had a horror of the multiple media. Uh, it, it was probably too democratic for her. Um, and and she not, therefore she only made this one print. Um, but it... Uh, uh, it, it, it's it's all of a piece. It, be, it became uh, therefore that she she this is a rather exclusive person, and had a had a had a kind of she didn't need the money, and she didn't want to be uh, had wanted to have her pictures in, mm. in places where they wouldn't be uh, left on the, uh, in the market. Stephen, I wanted to go back to Cynthia Rosnoy again, curator at the Mattituck Museum in Waterbury. It has uh, the world's largest collection of Kay Sage's work. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes. Uh, uh, what do you think people should draw from her life, Cynthia? Oh, from her life. From looking at the work that you wrote at Mattituck. Um, That, in fact, she did have a significant impact as a woman surrealist. And I want to um, say that that is actually becoming better known now. As you just asked, uh, when when did she become better known? I would say actually through work by Stephen. He and Jonathan Stuhlman did an exhibition in 2011 that paired them for the first time since that 1954 exhibition at the Wadsworth. Um, Her work through the Matatuck has now traveled to Museo Picasso in Malaysia, Spain. It's currently in Cologne, Germany. And the catalog resume, which Stephen worked on, was just published by Hallis Taggart. So this is the time that people are starting to really hear mm. about Casey. And the feminist movement as well helped uh, thrust Well, you know, that, the... that starts in the 70s yep. when art historians started recognizing this is our work to do. Well, I want to thank Cynthia Rosnoy again, curator at the Mattituck Museum in Waterbury. Hope we've enticed some of our listeners to head out to Waterbury to see this collection of K-Sage. Cynthia, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Also, Stephen Robeson-Miller, independent scholar in surrealism and a freelance curator. Uh, We'll tweet out a link to a story from the New York Times about that exhibit you worked on. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown and Scott Breedy. Thanks to uh, Carmen Baskoff and our technical producer, Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>